Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I wonder if you've ever felt desperately in need that you actually couldn't make it on your own anymore with your own resources. I remember feeling that way when I was 12 years old. My parents were going through a fairly uh, tumultuous divorce. My mother didn't make very much money. And there was one point where we didn't actually have enough food for dinner. Uh, And so I remember uh, she gave us Tylenol so that our stomachs wouldn't bother us too much, so that the pain wouldn't be too great. It didn't last long, but that was a period of our our life that I remember feeling really desperate, even as a young person. And uh, maybe you've been there in your own way, but I think it's quite terrifying to admit where we lack, to admit our need. Uh, I think before uh, this came along, do you remember before the Maps app? Uh, What's that other one? Not just Maps, Waze, yeah? Do you remember that? Well, uh, remember we didn't always have that, and like, and when men got lost when they were driving, it was very difficult for us to ask for directions. We didn't want to do that. Uh, and maybe some of you who are professors in this room, haven't you ever had like an 18-year-old student who was, already knew everything? Like they didn't have anything to learn from you because they would come to your office and tell you what they already knew. Nobody in this room, but other people in other places. They had no need for development. They had already arrived, right? Or maybe you have been relationally betrayed by somebody who promised and vowed certain things to you, but then they broke all of those. And so now you decided to trust no one. You don't need anybody anymore, like you're closed off now. Uh, Or do you know how hard it is for an addict to attend their first 12-step meeting? That's almost impossible because that's a public way of admitting that you need an incredible amount of very deep help. Uh, or maybe you're married and you're at an impasse, you know, you have had all the conversations and read the books, but you still keep, you're in this cul-de-sac, you just can't get out of it. You keep going back to the same themes, the same arguments, the same rage outs, the same half-ment apologies and all this stuff. Uh, and you don't have the resources within you to fix it. Well, Christianity teaches a dark but liberating word, and it's this, everybody in this room and everybody that you know is definitively needy all the time. And not just in moral ways, we're just needy all the time uh, for, ev- you know, for everything that is externally given to us. Like you need nitrogen, you know, or you're going to die. Like you need nitrogen and you can't make nitrogen. Um, or you need potable water. You probably need penicillin at some point. Maybe you'll need an oncologist. You need stable parents. You really do. And if you don't have them, your life will be very hard. Um, if you, or you need mental lucidity. You need plumbing that actually works. You need a car that's not a Ford. You need, enough, right? you need, you need to be able to drive it. Um, you need, um, somebody needs to be affectionate toward you. I mean, you have needs. You have very real needs. And they all require externally sourced provision because you can't create all these things. 
You need to be given many of these things. And so uh, we're in this sermon series called As the World Crashes Down. It's a sermon series about the prophet Elijah and his ministry. And I want to talk tonight about two needy people who received uncanny provision. This text, the Old Testament text from 1 Kings 17, is all about God's provision to two people who were in desperate need. Now, the context is important. I preached the first verse last week, but I included it in this reading because it sets up our reading really well. The context is a sort of miniature apocalypse in which this prophet, Elijah, confronts King Ahab and says, because of all of your pathological problems, because you've led the nation into idolatry, created little temples for Asherah and Baal, because you've done all of this, um, your land is going to be dry. Nothing from above, nothing from below. No rain from above, uh, no moisture and dew from below. That's what's going to happen, and it's going to be for years. Well, that happened, and in part that was an attack on the false trust of the emperor and empress who placed their belief in Baal and Asherah, who were gods and goddesses of productivity and rain. And so, no rain for you. That was the apocalyptic scene. And so, thus the land of milk and honey becomes a land of sand and stone and scarcity and starvation. Uh, It starts to lose its quality as a picture of the heavens. It starts to lose that quality. And this is a really terrible thing to happen, right? Because people weren't able to be as mobile then as they are now. And so, you know, your homeland was your homeland, and there were very few places you could escape to, especially places with strong national boundaries. And so, it would be not dissimilar to us if the power grid went, you know, or the internet died for like a year, or if, or if there's a new pandemic, you know, oh my gosh. Um, but anything that would make the world desperately needy, that's where they were, in a desperately needy place. And in the midst of this needy place that's drying up, we have an uncanny provision, and that provision is for Elijah. The first one is for Elijah. The second one affects him too, but the first one is really focused on him. Uh, um, because if Israel dries out, Everyone is afflicted, including the prophet who prophesied about it, right? Everyone is afflicted. The prophet is just as needy. I think that's really important because sometimes we we think of these these heroes of the Old Testament as invincible. You know, it's like the ubermensch, the superman, the, the person who was above the fray, burly, that could handle anything. No, they're just as human as you, and they get hungry, and they'd like some food. And so what happens is that Elijah gets a revelation from God. And this is in verse 2. I'd like you to follow along with me if you can. Verse 2. So he gets a bot coal. He gets a revelation. The word of the Lord comes to him. Verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook, Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Now, this is, uh, of course, a, a grand miracle because in the land, people are starting to starve because they can't harvest anything because nothing is growing. But Elijah gets the gift of a full meal twice a day. It's like he gets a sandwich, right? Because he gets bread and he gets meat. So he has sandwiches. 
Um, and, but there's more going on than sandwiches. This is reminiscent of Israel's own history at another, during another barren chapter of their corporate life. You may remember after the Exodus, Moses is leading the people in the wilderness, and they're in a lot of trouble because they're in a wilderness. It's a dry place where nothing is growing. And what happens? What begins to happen? Miraculous food appears bread from the heavens that they call manna, quail, meat from the heavens, right? And also water that appears miraculously from a rock. And here we see those same themes repeating themselves because Elijah receives bread and meat and water. So why is God repeating this provisional pattern for Elijah? He's saying to him, just as I was with the Israelites to preserve them from death, so too am I with you as you're alone and isolated in a destroyed territory. I'm with you just as much as I was with them. That's God's way of showing His withness, His presence. But what's fascinating to me about this passage is the unusual vehicle for the provision, namely the ravens. Interesting. I mean, I think it's interesting. Because the ravens are behaving contrary to their given nature. You may know that ravens are birds of prey. What they do, well, typically is not deliver food to people, but they find carcasses and eat them. But instead, here, they're almost doing the opposite. They're taking fresh meat and delivering it and not eating it, right? So God is evidently orchestrating the inner sense of a raven so that they do something different than they're used to doing. But, but more than that, Leviticus chapter 11 names ravens, among other birds, as being ritualistically unclean. Uh, they're, they're things that are abominable in terms, of their, uh, in terms of their nearness or especially their consumption, right? But sometimes God's provision comes to us in rather questionable means, at least questionable by us, unusual means that we would not have predicted um, I, I, I met a, a man who once said this about his job. He actually likened this passage. He's like, you know how the, the, the gross birds brought Elijah the food, yeah? He said, well, here's the thing. I have a job I absolutely hate. I hate it. Morning, noon, and night. I hate it. I go home, and I still hate that I have to go back. Um, he said, but at the same time, while the company is dubious and my, my boss doesn't like, doesn't like any humans and well, treats me miserably, uh, I have enough money to pay for my kids to go to college, and I have enough money to be okay, and to, my mortgage is taken care of, and, and for that I can be thankful. It's an unusual vehicle, but I'm grateful for what it's brought me. And some of you will be in that place for a little while, you know, God's provision coming through a rather unusual means, but it does happen. So Elijah is there uh, receiving this miracle in the wilderness all by himself, but what's interesting about this miracle is its temporal quality. You know, it doesn't last forever. The passage says, beginning in verse 7, And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Here's what's interesting. God doesn't give Elijah the long game plan. He doesn't say, Elijah, there's like lots of stops on the way. Let me detail all this out for you so that you won't have anxiety issues. No, instead, following the Lord is sort of like one step at a time. He kind of says the next thing, 
And then you, you trust and you take that step, but you don't know what's coming after that. It's like what happens when Jesus calls the disciples to follow him. He doesn't really say what they're getting into. It might be good that he didn't tell them. You know, Peter, by the way, um, your death is going to be especially grisly. He doesn't get into that. Uh, similarly, he just tells, um, he tells Elijah first to go by the brook, and then later you have to leave the brook. And I want to make this point here. Sometimes God's means of provision will change in your life. Just because you're given a breakthrough doesn't mean it's going to last forever. You know, sometimes God's provision alters course or takes different forms. So you might have a great career right now where you're flourishing. You may have plenty of money. You know, you can take two vacations a year. Um, perhaps, uh, perhaps you have a, a, a great phase in your parenting or you're managing things very well or your marriage is delightful. Uh, you know, you can put your feet up and that's good. But, but maybe that season of life will change. It doesn't mean God isn't in it, but it might mean it doesn't last forever. Because all provision, even miraculous provision like this, dries up eventually. Because within this veil of tears, where the resurrection has not yet occurred, where permanence in eternity is not yet in place, miracles all have a shelf life. You know, everybody that Jesus touched and healed, you know, people that were healed of leprosy later, maybe 10 years later, died of cancer. It doesn't mean that their miracle wasn't real or good enough. It was. But we need a grander miracle than even temporal miracles. We'll get into that later. But temporal miracles, as wonderful as they are, do have a shelf life. But that's the uncanny provision for Elijah. We have another uncanny provision, though, for this widow and her family with Elijah. And you might uh, recall just from it being read in, in this service, the second provisional scene where Elijah, it's a weird scene, finds this widow, asks her for water at first and then food. She says, look, um, I don't have it. You know, I, I have a little bit of stuff that I can make a bagel with. But after the bagel is eaten, we're planning to, to starve. I'm giving myself and my son a very simple last meal and then we're going to experience the indignity of withering away into the dust. Um, and Elijah uh, says to her, after that grim announcement, I know, but I want the bagel, right? Um, <laughs> he's saying, I would like the food. Um, and if you give me the food, he, he gives her a promise, and we'll get into that in a minute. But what's fascinating about this woman is that at least many people within Elijah's culture at the time would have two things against her. The first is that she's a Gentile, and a particular kind of Gentile. A Gentile just means she's not Jewish. In other words, she's outside of God's covenant promises. She's outside of the family, outside of the law. Um, but she's also a dweller in enemy territory. She's a Sidonian. That's the empire of Phoenicia. That's where Jezebel comes from. She's part of that group. Uh, and uh, moreover, um, she's a widow. Now, that's not placed within a moral category, but a more pitiable one. She's a, a person who is in perpetual need. By the way, widows could work in that day and age, but the pay was really bad, and they were often reliant upon neighbors. You know, she used to have security in life. She used to have a, a man who probably worked full-time, but he's gone, and now she has to take care of herself. But if you're reliant upon your neighbors in the midst of a famine, that's a problem because your neighbors don't have anything either, which means you can't glean or take from their philanthropic urges. You just have what you have, and you don't have much, 
and what she had was about to be taken from her. Uh, but Elijah has a good word for this uh, Gentile, Phoenician, Sidonian woman, and it starts in verse 13. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make, me some for your, make some for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. Now, commentators love to speculate about the, this woman's inner spirituality. You know, they say God blesses her because she was a believer. And I'm like, yeah, we don't really know that. We don't know that at all. Earlier, when she speaks to Elijah, she says, as the Lord your God lives, thus and such, meaning, or at least perhaps implying, that that was the Lord his God, but not necessarily her own. We don't know. All we do know is that when Elijah offers her this promise, if you give me the bagel, you'll have bagels too, for as long as you can possibly imagine until there's rain again, that's what she was told, and she says, okay. And she's obedient to the word that was given to her. She believes the word of the prophet. And what's the result? This beautiful provision of food, like Jesus with the loaves and the fishes, only more. That the oil and the bread last until it rains. And so she's able to provide for herself and her son and even Elijah. That's a very beautiful thing. Because, you know, it's one thing to think God will provide for his Navy SEALs, you know, for the prophets, for the important muscled up people, for the people that really have the word to speak, that have an influence, that God will provide for them is sort of a no-brainer in some ways, but it is quite another thing and very beautiful that God looks at this unseen, unnoticed, Sidonian woman who is excluded for all sorts of reasons and sees her too, and that she matters too. Well, a thousand years later, this story remains so controversial that Jesus almost got himself killed by mentioning it in a sermon, because it suggested that God has eyes on the outsiders who are, who are, look different, speak differently, think differently, feel differently, were raised differently. My, I think the point of this particular provision for the widow and her family is that God's mercy is very often a million miles wider than our own. And that his vision sees further than ours. You know, I find, at least for me, perhaps for you, we bar the gates pretty easily, tighten the circle pretty quickly. We very easily think less of people who vote differently, who utilize their educational models for children differently. We disregard other Christians who worship differently uh, who interpret Genesis 1 differently, who use liturgy, who don't use liturgy. Um, worse, we often can't even get along with people within our own Christian denomination. We get defensive and sputtery and suspicious because there's something hell-bent within the fallen human condition that is not content that human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. We want human beings to be made in the image and likeness of us. But God's provision for this unseen, unknown widow is such a revelation because it says God is not like us in the most wonderful way. God is not like us. He has kinder eyes and wide open gates for people that we might normally like to exclude. 
And so we have two provisional miracles, one for Elijah and the other for this widow and her son, and Elijah benefits as well. So I'd like to land this for us, who of course are living in a very different time and place, biblically speaking. Uh, I'm going to try to connect this with us. Uh, We learn from 1 Kings 17 many things, but principally this, that the center of being, that is the triune God, is a provider by his very nature. From Genesis 1 onwards, God is displayed as a provider. Provision flows from his very nature. It's just what God does. And everyone in this room needs two kinds of provision, two types of provision. The first is right now provision. Right now provision. Uh, I believe it was the doors who sang, I need a miracle every day, but correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Not now, later. Um, Right now provision. And the second is everlasting provision. We need both. Right now provision and everlasting provision, or put another way, we need daily bread and eternal bread. We need bread that perishes, and we need bread that leads to eternal life. So the right now provision, whether it's easy or hard for us to admit, we are all hyper-dependent upon external provision. There's a a famous statue, uh, I can't stand it, Uh, is a famous statue of a man, muscled up man with a hammer in one hand, a chisel in the other, and and his feet still, his legs and feet are stuck, they're not stuck, it's just a one big concrete block at the bottom, and he's clearly carving himself out of the rock, and it's called the self-made man. And it's supposed to be evocative of all of our quests, that this is who we are supposed to be. Um, No. No, no. We are all hyper-dependent upon external provision, whether we admit to it or in flat denial of it. So my question to you is, where are you starving? Where are you starving? Where are you aching? Where are you in need? Because we all need help, and we all get very lost sometimes, and we get very lonely and very hungry, Uh, whether we're financially insecure or we have a really horrific chronic illness or our job is soul-destroying or we just need to move on from some old offense that has captivated us or we just need a friend because we're so desperately lonely or because we're involved in a poisonous romance and we just need out. We all need help and we're all hungry for something. And this is what Jesus taught when he was with us. Jesus taught us that his father was a great provider, a great provider. And he taught us that we could ask him for things, that we could ask. He says, in fact, ask, seek, and knock. Like, do whatever you have to do, but bombard heaven. Ask for things. Because he said that you're asking the right source. Jesus says this on the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the most beautiful things ever, ever spoken. He said, because when you ask God for bread, just like you, you would ask your, your own earthly father for bread, do you think he's going to give you a plate of cobras? Do you, do you think that's what's going to happen? He's going to kill you. He's going to poison you. He's going to make your life horrible. Sometimes we think that when we pray, right, that God will make it worse. Okay, maybe it's just me, but have you ever, you know what I mean? Like if I really pray and humbly put myself before the Lord, he'll turn off the heat to like put pressure on me so I change, you know, all this stuff. But Jesus says, if you ask for something that you need, 
you're not asking an abuser. You're asking somebody who loves you more than you love you. So Jesus says to ask for what you need. Ask for, the, for, for daily bread because he says, you know, God cares for the grass of the field, which is beautiful today and then thrown into the oven tomorrow, but he cares a lot more for you than the grass. And often, friends, provision comes even when we don't ask. But sometimes, according to the epistle of James, we don't have because we don't ask. Sometimes that's true. And so I'd like to invite you into the discipline of asking. It's a discipline because our natural inclination is not to ask, but to plan. Like if we have a problem, we think, how am I going to solve this? Like I need to solve this. I'm responsible for solving this. And I'm not saying you don't have a role, but before that, before you, we have to get to God. You know, if we're like Christians, we should probably start with God and not self because God doesn't err, but self does. So it's better to ask. It's better to say to the Father, look, I've got this problem. It's enormously debilitating. I know in the grand scheme of things, you know, like I'm not, I'm not in a death camp. Like I get that. But nevertheless, this is really, really weighing down on me and I need help here. Would you please show me what to do? Or would you give me something that I can't get, you know, from my own faculties? But help me here. But to go to God first before you start with the the inner engineering, you know? That's what it means to be a Christian in some ways, that we turn to the one who really has the power and the resources before we start thinking that person is us. Um, but I also realize that asking for things, the right now provision of God, is very agonizing. It's agonizing in two ways. One, it's agonizing to our ego because we think we ought to manage everything. We ought to have all the answers. We ought to be fully formed. We ought to know. We ought to be able to do this. And then we just hate ourselves when we aren't able to do it. But we think we can manage everything, so we don't ask. Or we think we don't matter to God or that our daily problems don't matter to God. So we're like, why bother asking when other people have worse problems? But Jesus never taught that. He said, no, you go to the Father and you ask because he's not going to give you a cobra. I, have a, I was visiting with one of you the other day, and I was so impressed by the conversation. A man that I very much respect, and um, he said, look, about two years ago, I realized I needed a change in my life, that I came to the place in myself where I said, I can't do this anymore, and I can't change, and I know that I, I, I need to. And so I went and I got some help. I went and I saw a, a, a therapist, and I learned all sorts of things, and I feel better. That sounds simple. This has changed his life in wonderful ways because he asked. He admitted he needed help. He went to God. God gave him some clarity, and then he got the help that he needed, and he's in a wider space because he listened after he asked. Yeah. Well, the right now provision of God matters, but it doesn't last forever. It doesn't last forever. Healing in this world doesn't last forever. Breakthroughs don't always last forever, but they can also alter the course of a good chunk of your life. Now let's talk about the everlasting provision of God that does last forever because you in this room need bread and oil that don't run out. You need a miracle that lasts, that endures. Because all of our temporal needs, our isolation, our, our depression, our dysmorphia, our self-hatred, our dysfunction, are evidences. They all bleed out, but they're evidences of a deeper, even the deepest need that we have. And what's the deepest need that we have? Uh, reconciliation with the source. 
We need to be rebonded with God, to share the life of God again. We need non-antagonism with God. We need it so desperately and so deeply. Well, God, the incessant provider, has met our deepest need with an everlasting gift. Not a temporal gift, but an everlasting gift. I'll close with this illustration. Alistair Begg, who many of you know, he has a great accent. He's the, minister, the head minister of Parkside Church. And he makes this point so beautifully about the neediest man alive, namely the thief on the cross, crucified next to Jesus, who is just moments away from his own death. You may know the story, right? Jesus is crucified with two other people, and they're both ticked off, you know, at first, and they're railing against Christ. But then one of them kind of has a change of heart. Um, and the other one's just a jerk. But uh, so Alistair says, uh, he, he said, I'm not going to do the accent, though I'm tempted to. Alistair says, you remember the old question, if you died tonight, would it make you, would, what would get you into heaven? What would get you into heaven? And he continues, if you answer that question in the first person, you're doing it wrong because I have faith, because I obeyed, because I cooperated. No, the only proper answer is in the third person because he, because he, because he broke through, because he saved me. Think about the thief on the cross, he continues. I can't wait to find him in heaven one day and ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were cussing out Jesus uh, with your other crucified friend, but you, know, you were never in a Bible study, you never got baptized, you didn't know a thing about church membership, and yet you made it. You made it. How? Well, that's what the angel at heaven's door must have asked, you know, what, what, are, what are you doing here? And he says, well, I, I don't know. What, 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 do you, what do you mean you don't know? Well, because I don't know. Sorry about that. Angel gets a big tongue, tongue tied like, well, uh, uh, okay. Uh, well, let me get my supervisor. So they get the supervising angel, and he says, Okay, so we're a little confused, but we have some questions for you. First of all, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? The guy says, I'd never heard of that in my whole life. Not a clue, no. Uh, well, then please tell us about your doctrine of Scripture. Are you an inerrantist, or do you just believe in infallibility? And the guy's just staring like, what? I don't know. Uh, and eventually, in frustration, the supervisor asks, then on what basis are you here? And the thief says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. And that's the only answer. That is your eternal answer. That is my eternal answer. It's the only answer. And he continues by saying, if I don't preach the gospel to myself all day and every day, then I will find myself beginning to trust myself. If I take my eyes off the cross and live as if salvation depends upon me, it will lead either to abject despair or a horrible kind of arrogance. It is only the cross of Christ that deals both with our depths of despair and the pretentious arrogance of human beings. Only the cross meets our deepest need. The crucified and risen Christ is the only imperishable miracle. He's the bread that never runs out. He's the oil that never spoils. His cross is the ultimate everlasting provision of your Father. 
the man on the middle cross did it all. And the man on the middle cross said that you can come too. All is provided. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Free at last, Amen. they took your life. They couldn't 